Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative this beautiful Thursday morning. And we have on the phone with us this morning, Mr. Brad Mitchell, who's the Managing Director for Batele for Kids. Good morning, Mr. Mitchell. Good morning, Vernon. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us. Brad, what is Batele for Kids? I know I, I know you've done collaboratives and you compared collaboratives to cooperatives, and we want to get to that. But first, let's talk about what is Batele for Kids and what do you do there? Yeah, so I appreciate the uh, the version you said of our name. It is Patel for Kids. And we're a, a national nonprofit that, that's been around for 17 years, and we've worked in over 40 states. And our main mission is to help uh, schools that are struggling get better, uh, particularly that are furthest from the opportunity. So we work particularly in rural schools, but we also work in urban schools that are struggling as well. So you work with struggling schools to get them to be better? Correct. Mainly rural, but some urban also. Correct. Do you say the same kinds of issues in both rural and urban schools that you have to overcome? Well, I think, as you well know, the issues of poverty and the, and the cultural dynamics of poverty and the barriers to learning of poverty can are very similar, in whether you're in urban, suburban, or rural areas. The basic issues of having access to high-quality teachers uh, is a very similar issue with struggling schools. But I think one of the big differences is that rural schools, so many of them, the school is the center of the rural community, uh, which is not always the case in urban schools because they're in big urban areas. Uh, and when the school goes south, uh, the community goes south and vice versa. And so there's really much deeper connections between the community and school uh, in positive ways, but also in negative ways, particularly when like the opioid addiction takes hold of a, of a rural area and or poverty becomes too great. So I would say the school and community relationships are the biggest difference between urban and rural schools. But I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, so it's rural. We not quite as rural as some of the other counties like Medow County. But what I noticed early on is that poverty uh, it didn't care, it didn't discriminate between black or white or young or poor or male or female. That when poverty hit you, it was just it hit you the same for everybody. Is that your view too? Have you found it? Yes, <laughs> absolutely, totally agree. Um, and as often as you well know, uh, that kind of uh, discrimination or that kind of cultural optics at kids from poverty it also often is it's too invisible. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it is pernicious. Uh, whether you're in an urban or a rural area, the effect of poverty can be dramatic on educational attainment. Well, just for the audience, we met at a Appalachian uh, Higher Education Network conference this summer and I've been on a board called the West Virginia Access to Higher Education where we look at getting more and more high school students to go to college and the results have been phenomenal. I've been on that board Brad for maybe 14 years and the problem though is getting money (laughs) and we've been to legislation in West Virginia, the Senate and the House and everything and everybody says we really want to improve education but when it comes to divvying out the money it doesn't seem to be there. What's your view on that? Have you seen that everybody talks about improving education but allocating dollars whether it's for quality teachers or for materials and supplies let alone advancing the concept of having every kid in high school know what they're going to do after high school. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of hit and miss. Um, as you know, in the last 10 years, um, there were a significant amount of resources put into education, particularly from the federal government, to race to the top programs. Um, and, uh, and so in many ways, you're right in the sense of that was kind of a bubble. And uh, once that program ended, uh, the pursuit of 
dollars and the available dollars for schools is, is very difficult to come by today. But in the last decade, there were a lot of resources out there. Um, but what often would happen is those resources um, would too much go to urban areas, and rural schools in particular were, were largely ignored. Um, our founding director of Patel for Kids uh, was a former uh, superintendent in southeast Ohio, very rural part of Ohio. And he used to say to his colleagues, um, aren't you sick and tired of being sick and tired and being overlooked and undervalued? Um, and so I agree with you. I think in particular um, rural school investment is not top of the mind in many places. And even though we had a recent 10-year increase in federal funding, rural schools I don't think got their fair share in terms of the issues of poverty and other issues that they face to try to improve. So what does – now, is Patel the owner's name, or how did you come up with that name? Yeah, Patel, uh, interesting story about Patel. The big Patel, which is the Patel Memorial Institute, was started in the height of the Depression in Columbus, Ohio, by an engineer uh, who wanted to create a nonprofit company to create new knowledge for new products um, to help improve the world. And because it was a nonprofit, the relationship they worked out with the state of Ohio was that uh, 20% of their quote-unquote profits in the nonprofit um, would go to increasing educational attainment and educational quality, particularly in Ohio, but also around the country. And so from that 1929-1930 dream of, of Gordon Battelle, who was the original founder of the Battelle Memorial Institute, was created the world's largest nonprofit R&D think tank. It manages the seven uh, federal energy labs. It is now probably a five or six billion dollar business with twenty thousand folks uh, employed around the country, and they spun us off as a nonprofit in two thousand and invested in us. And so we started out from that kind of mission of using human knowledge through engineering and technology and science to generate resources to invest in education. And then about six or seven years ago, uh, we were so successful that we spun off from Big Patel Memorial Institute. They're still on our board but they no longer give us any resources, and, and we're now a full-fledged nonprofit on our own. Okay, that is a ph- phenomenal story, but why would you leave the source of the dollars? No, we don't have to go there. <laughs> okay. Well, no, well, it's interesting. When they gave us our initial grant, that they kind of said, because ultimately at the end of the day, they're, uh, they're engineers and they're business people. They said, we can start you out for four or five years, but you've got to show that you can meet your mission and that you can get other people to invest in you. Uh, and that you can be grounded by uh, by districts around the country or state agencies or federal government that really believe in your work. So they essentially gave us a challenge when mm-hmm. they first birthed us to say, you've got to become self-sustaining. And as you know, what often can happen with nonprofits, no matter how good they are, uh, they face that, that sustainability all the time. They're still on our board. They still help us find resources, but uh, we have to make it on our own now. And I think in a way that helped us be better, to be frankly honest. With well, it really makes you sure that you do what your mission is and exactly. find the funding for it. And what is your mission? It's that I know that struggling schools and make them better. And I, I think the overall mission, and it's kind of shifted in the last few years because of where the American mind has gone. While a lot of good educational reform has happened over the last decade, we've somewhat taken the spirit and joy and meaningfulness out of learning in terms of perhaps over-testing for all good reasons in terms of equity and making sure kids can read and write, but the standards-based movement and the testing movement kind of got out of balance, and so we have shifted our mission a little bit while standards and access to an effective future and, and, and making sure there's equitable educational opportunity is hugely important. We also think that there are other skills that kids need to learn to thrive in an ever-changing economy, like critical thinking, communications, collaboration, what businesses often call the soft skills. More and more communities and parents are saying those are skills that have been undervalued uh, and need to be emphasized. So our mission, while we still focus on struggling schools, we really want to work with schools that really want to move to what is often called 21st century learning skills in terms of this meaningful, deeper learning so that kids can be successful and resilient and adaptive and deal with whatever's coming in the future. And we all know with what's happening right now in the world and America, who knows what the future has with kids that have resilient and adaptable skills um, have a better chance of success. Have you ever heard of Alverno College, maybe Alverno University up in Milwaukee? Not much, uh, just a little bit. Please educate. Well, I used to chair the MBA program at Howard, and 
this nun from this school, uh, I went to a conference with the deans, like the Stanford and the Harvards and the Babcock. So all of these different schools were there, and she got up and talked about assessments as opposed to testing. And I've visited the school a couple of times since then because I was really impressed with what they do. They don't give uh, grades. You have to make a, like a 95 or better to move to the next one. And each school, each class, you have your knowledge base that you want to get out of a class. And then you have those soft skills that you talk about. Critical thinking, uh, uh, analytical thinking, computers, uh, international and they even had one in there that was about artistic. They had another name for it. So they had about nine skills on the axes on one side, soft skills, if you will, and then on the speaking with another one. And, and then on the top, they had the, the knowledge you wanted to get out of that subject matter. Uh, and I had taught something like that, but nowhere as in the depth that they had taught it. But when you I've been amazed that the way they teach has not sort of taken over because it does both of those those things that you're talking about, and they're so critically important. When I taught marketing at Howard, I could tell a student, I can teach you the concepts of marketing um, or sales, but when you got when you got to sit in, across the table from somebody and know whether they can do what they say they're going to do or will do what they say they're going to do, I can't teach that. That's in the gut and some due diligence. But this, this Alverno was just awesome from, from what I've gotten. Yeah, I think the good news is the Alvernos around the country, whether higher education or K-12, are growing as more and more people value this kind of, of learning. Um, we used to be involved in what's called STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And, uh, and, again, that was very important in terms of getting more engineers in this country and a variety of things like that. But we found, particularly in rural schools, if you push the STEM label as science, technology, and engineering, and math, what often we do is we get pushback of a of, of couple things. One, folks would say, oh, yeah, those are the uh, degrees in which our kids then leave us and we have brain drain and our communities go down. Or, secondly, they say those are our subject areas that aren't relevant to everyday living where we are. Mm-hmm. So we actually changed the same thing from science, technology, engineering, math to uh, the skills to employ myself, S-T-E-M, skills to employ myself. And that shift in mindset was used because I think what often happens is all of us have gone to school in one way or the other, and we're kind of used to what it is to be a good student and that whole grade base and, and work hard. And the, the shift in mindset that has to take place for both the learner and the educators and the community and family of moving away from a grade-based kind of pass-the-test mentality and you learn something, mm-hmm. much more of this authentic grit, resilience, communication, critical thinking, collaboration skills. It's going to take a mindset, but the Alvernos of the world and other places are really pushing that new narrative. Brad, Brad you're saying it's some great exciting. stuff, so I hate to stop you, but we've yeah. got to take our first break. So everybody out there, please don't touch your dial. We're going to come back and talk about this collaborative. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. We have Mr. Brad Mitchell on the line with us this morning. And Brad, right before we took a break, you were talking about the skills uh, to employ myself, which you put in place instead of STEM, because STEM did not necessarily teach people how to live in the community they were in uh, and those soft skills. So could you pick back on that? You were talking. You were saying a whole lot. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry if I talk too fast and too long on that. I, you know, I, I think the basic thing about skills to employ myself is when you look at where our economies are going, particularly rural economies, um, so many of our millennial kids um, are, are augmenting their income if they have jobs uh, with uh, self-employment or gig, what they call the gig economy in terms of consultancies. Um, and where do they learn those skills? Um, and so in many of the rural schools we work in, we work with curriculum and programming in which kids can learn the skills, whether it be financial literacy, 
or entrepreneurial skills or the ability to design your own um, business, uh, those skills are going to become more and more important, particularly in rural areas that uh, have lost the advanced manufacturing or the manufacturing base, um, have, have, have had the brain drain issue of talent moving out. If you're going to keep kids in rural areas, you're going to have to augment their skills to build their own businesses, to build their own employment. Uh, and that's just not going to be a rural problem. When you look at robotics and automation, when you look at the, uh, the, the post-industrialized America, we've lost a lot of jobs, not because Mexico took them, but because we've got robots doing jobs that weren't being done before. And so if we don't develop in skills kids that can design and make their own living and their own livelihood, uh, there are going to be a lot of kids in this country that are going to struggle. It's amazing. Um, I took off from school like one year and was nine months, and I worked at Ford Factory um, doing welding. Um, they call it spot welding. Those jobs don't exist anymore. I look at a line. I looked at a Ford line. Now, they're, they're all robots. Yep. They don't have people on those lines anymore. Um, which is absolutely amazing to me when I, the first time that I saw that. Um, so you want to teach these skills and I just want to put a plug in the reason, one of the reasons, uh, one of the things I look for when I go to these conferences is how to be able to tell people about the cooperative model, because I have found that that model uh, could really help kids to come together to form those companies and to learn what they need to learn. The the center of the corporate model is their fifth principle, education, training, and information. And I've also found in the cooperative world, when I go to conferences on the cooperative world, people really give away information. There's, there's competitiveness. It may exist on some co- in some areas of co-op, but most of the ones that I've been to, it just does not exist. So it's trying to get, get this plugged in to know about this cooperative model so people can, not just the kids, but the adults that don't have work uh, can come in and form a co-op and have a much better chance of success. Right here, a plug for for you, Brad, is that 10% of businesses, the capitalistic businesses that get started are in business five years down the road. Where you look at the co-op businesses, 90% are still in business five years down the road. And the main reason that I have found is this education piece and working together. And it takes longer to start a business because of the education. Okay. And, but once they get started, they, they really, really work. So let's go back. Uh, what do you think about that first? Well, it's funny you mentioned that because, uh, like you were saying earlier, there aren't often external investments, whether they be philanthropic or governmental uh, investments in innovation in rural areas. But from about 2002 to 2012, there was a group called the National uh, Rural Funders Collaborative that were made up of uh, national philanthropies that coordinated their monies to invest in, in rural education and economic development. And they did that for 10 years. And then at the end of the day, after 10 years, they did a study and because they really didn't think they were making the impact they wanted to make. Uh, and so they were closing down shop on that particular initiative. But to your, point, your last point you just made, uh, one of the big findings they had out of that study well, is similar to your 90-10 thing. While a lot of the things they invested in didn't kind of lead to where they wanted it to go, their most successful impact uh, programs that they did invest in were almost always collaborative. They were almost always grounded in the place-based area in terms of the constituencies and the people of the area that owned it. Um, and they were very practical and relevant moves, whether it was training for entrepreneurship or whatever. But even in the philanthropic investment thing, the power of cooperation, the power of collaboration, particularly in rural settings, uh, has much more of a scalable and sustainable hope, uh, both in the public and in the private sector. Where can I get a copy of that? You said it's the National Rural Funded Collaborative? Yeah, it was called the National Rural Funders Collaborative. And um, if you Google that and put in, I think they did a final report called a race poverty and something that I don't remember now, but if you just do National Rural Funders Collaborative and Race, Poverty, and Blank Report, um, you'll get that full report. It's online. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, so tell me what you do with collaboratives. 
So it's very simple. Well, you, you're the co-op expert much better than I, I am. But uh, one of the things about six or seven years ago at Patel for Kids, like I said, our former director was a former superintendent of Southeast Ohio. He wanted, he knew the power of collaboration from working down with his colleagues all over the years. And so about six years ago, he said, what if we created a, co- a cooperative collaborative in Ohio um, that could help out rural education, particularly in Southeast Ohio? And so we designed and launched with people in the area uh, the Ohio Appalachian Collaborative, uh, which is now 27 school districts uh, serving 48,000 kids. Um, and give you a sense of that in Ohio, which a lot of people think is an urban state, that would, if that was a single district, that would be the second largest school district in the state of Ohio, which changes their voice and influence working forward. Uh, and the notion as we were designing this is we really looked at the old literature on cooperatives to see uh, if you brought together uh, uh, 27 school districts, uh, how could you organize them in a way where they could be successful? And we essentially followed on three principles, which I know you know a lot about in terms of co-ops. Uh, the user benefit principle, which was essentially focus on helping those districts get access to services um, or resources they couldn't get alone. Um, and so we came around and when we got with the districts, they said, well, one, uh, everybody's saying we've got to have better teachers, but nobody wants to teach in Southeast Ohio and or the quality of professional learning is not there. So could we design a coordinated to teacher recruitment and retention effort as well as a professional learning system and do this together? rather than separate. Um, and if you think about it, districts, small districts, and local colleges of education, colleges of education aren't going to care about a district that has 500, 600 kids. But you pull together 48,000 kids, you suddenly can be an influence with that uh, higher ed partner about mm-hmm. the kind of teachers they're getting and how you get them to your area. So access to professional learning and teacher recruitment was a big issue that they came together, that kind of user benefit principle out of co-ops. Second, the user owner principle, they wanted to own it. Uh, what often happens with rural districts is the feds can come in or states can come in or philanthropies like ours to help the kids can come in or regional service centers, and we can push solutions, push services on them that may or may not fit. So the second thing in designing the thing is that user-owner principle where they were a self-governing, self-assembly enterprise to identify the things they wanted to work on. And then the last principle was user control which, as you know, deals with the principle of we want, only want to work on things that are very relevant uh, to us um, and that we can control what's happening. One of the key things we've done there, which I'm really very excited about, is um, there's something called research practice partnerships, which is connecting with universities and or private think tank researchers and identifying in a district what are some problems of practice or local area things you're having and how can we help develop data and research and solutions with you off your own solutions and validate them. Rural districts don't have access to those partnerships. They exist a lot in urban and higher education partnerships, but research practice partnerships in rural areas don't exist a lot. And so the best thing under user control is, again, by working together, we were able to create relationships with higher education, which they could provide inquiry and research services to rural districts that they never could have done if the districts hadn't collaborated. So the user benefit, the user ownership, and the user control design principles were hugely important to us. And the last thing I'll say on this is, so we went from OAC, and then when we met, when I met you down in West Virginia, we now have a national uh, group called the National Rural Collaborative, where we identified 14 other collaboratives that are like that, and we have formed a national collaborative so that those uh, collaboratives in those various areas can come together and learn from each other. So we're big, big, big believers in the power of, of tough assembly and the power of cooperative action, particularly in rural areas, to make a difference. Okay, you just said a book worth. <laughs> and for me, no, 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 no apology. For me, it was exciting because you've taken the the old literature on cooperatives and created 27 district co-op. Uh, you call it collaborative. And yeah. you used uh, <clears throat> some of the principles. And so I just wanted to, the first principle of cooperative is volunteer and open membership. So you've got 27 districts. Anybody in there doesn't make any difference about uh, gender or social, racial, political, or religious belief. You become a member. Correct. Coalition of the Willing is what we call it. Coalition what? Coalition of the Willing is what we call it. Coalition of the Willing. Okay. (laughs) And then the second principle is democratic member control. Uh, And that's one member, one vote, but they have to have that 
control. And you said that, that was one of the yes. things you looked for, user control. Absolutely. Uh, how did you all vote? Was it 27 districts? So each district had one vote on things? or? Well, in the Ohio Appalachian Collaborative, we did it kind of two ways. 27 districts, a lot of districts. And in southeast Ohio, I think that covered like 5,000 square miles. And so, you know, like all politics is local, all collaboration is local, too. So we had two kinds of member voice. One, within those 27 districts, there were kind of six natural clusterings of districts near each other or in the same athletic association. Hold, hold one second. Uh, yeah. Brad, we have to take our second break. So we'll come back. I've got 50,000 square miles, and you got six clusters around these 27 um, school districts. But we'll be right back. This is very, very exciting. I'm so glad you decided to come on. So we'll be right back. Everybody, please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we're getting a lot of great information about education in the urban world uh, from Mr. Mark Mitchell. Mark is the managing director of Battelle for Kids in Ohio, and they had 27 school districts come together with 48,000 kids, and they looked at three areas he talked about was uh, the benefits of coming together, which they couldn't get teacher Good teachers, for example, but by coming together, 48,000 kids, they could put in the program for, for um, attracting, recruiting, and retaining uh, good teachers. The second was user-owner principles and user control, which they got from the cooperative world. Okay, you were talking about the 5,000 square feet and how you were you were using the, the second principle of control. Uh, how do you make decisions? So decisions, like I said, uh, they, they're broken up into clusters, and so usually it's four to six districts in a cluster, and they get together around their local needs um, and can make decisions, obviously, at that level. And then one representative from each of those five or six clusters meet um, about every other month in a kind of a steering committee on the, then the broader across the 27. So we kind of go from small clusters to large group is one way to make decisions. The second way is we have a pretty vital uh, communication system. And so when a new activity comes up, like um, uh, philanthropy or is interested in investing in rural or there's a new federal or state program, we'll put that out. And then, again, that coalition of willing idea, those districts that are interested in doing that work we will then come together um, and we will pursue. So out of 27, sometimes 12 districts want to go after Grant X. And on another grant, maybe nine districts want to go after it. Um, I'll give you a good example of that. About three years ago, um, there was a grant, a state grant from Ohio, from a great program called um, Straight Aid Fund, which was to fund innovation. Um, and uh, about 24 of the 27 districts wanted to go after that grant, and they wanted to focus on dual enrollment, which is getting college credit in during high school at the high school campus. Research shows that rural kids who have access to college courses of relevance and meaning at their high school A, are more likely to graduate from that high school. B, are more likely to go on and get post-secondary pursuit. And C, uh, to to succeed at college or getting a a license, a a work-based license as well. So dual enrollment is huge. And the other thing about dual enrollment is it really reduced college cost. In a time where the average college cost debt for a kid is $25,000 for rural kids and their families, that can be huge. And so dual enrollment can reduce college cost because you're getting free college credit during high school. That was a long-winded way to say that that was an example of a very pragmatic rural base. Get more of our kids getting post-secondary credentials to labor market value, have them have less college debt cost, uh, and be more relevant. That came from uh, kind of a one district, one vote set of districts that said we want to go after that and design a shared dual enrollment system. So it's that kind of power of cooperation that can take place with these kind of things. You know, I was looking at the main benefit of these dual enrollments was reducing the cost of college. That, that yep. Some kids would, uh, I heard of maybe two kids that when they finished high school, they got a college degree and a couple, uh, uh, 
quite a few more when they finish high school to have an AA degree. Um, But um, the more uh, I hadn't thought about the retention aspect of taking these dual classes, dual enrollment would cause a kid to stay in school. I know at at the West Virginia Access, we found that if you get a, a, a kid on a college campus, and they can see the college campus, feel it, taste it, smell it, then they have a greater likelihood of going to college. I mean, just that one event. And when you talk about dual enrollment where you could get college credits at their local school, that is great. How did that program turn out? Uh, like I said, we're three years in, but the data we've got so far is that um, and you know, equity in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion are hugely important because the other dilemma with dual enrollment is sometimes the have and have not gap can be increased because Either the higher income can or, 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 or the culture that is more dominant uh, can have more participation in these dual enrollment courses. We're seeing that that's not the case, that it is cutting across a race and class, not that there's a lot of racial diversity in Southeast Ohio. Um, that the, like I said, the college savings costs, I think, are now at $8,000 per kid uh, that, that finishes. That a very high percentage of kids uh, take at least nine credits of dual enrollment in, in the area. And then there are the other things which we didn't really think about that much about when you have dual enrollment courses taught by high school teachers in the high school, it raises the game of all of the high school staff because <laughs> you're building local talent. And it isn't just the kids go off to a college somewhere and then you don't have to face it. It's Mr. Mitchell in, in uh, 203 that's uh, teaching uh, a dual enrollment course. So we've actually seen increases in terms of the value-added scores of teachers in terms of improving uh, growth in their kids. Um, across the board. So it's it's had a variety of ripple effects, including increased ACT scores in many places, um, which helps get you into college, as you know. Um, and so still early. Uh, we're only three or four years in, but the early indicators are pretty positive. Brad, I was I was wanting to know, did you get it started when I say what's three results? Okay. <laughs> so when you say still early, I'm, you're down the road. We got three years of data. So that's fantastic and and I would not have thought of that either of uh, that that your your professors end up uh teachers end up getting a increasing their skill sets which causes the whole community the whole high school community to increase their skill set exactly great okay and that's on control with 24 of your 27 districts coming in I would have thought that the other three would have joined if, if they got it going uh, I, you know, readiness and issues, uh, you know, in many rural places, you know, the superintendent's the only person in the central office sometimes. And sometimes if you're building a building or you got a community issue, you can't be distracted. So it wasn't like the three didn't want to play. If they just kind of looked at it and said, at this time, we just don't have the capacity to take on that kind of stuff. Got it. That's sad, but I got it. The third principle is member economic participation. Normally it's, you got democratic control and there's some buy-in dollar wise. And if there were some profits or something or surpluses on the end, there's a payout to the, to the members based on how much they use the product or how much they buy into it for the most part. So did you all have any kind of dollars like that for your districts where in order to have a staff or whatever they needed, they put some money into this? Yeah, that's a great question. So as you know, with rural, $5,000 can be in them can be very difficult uh, to, to pull together. They are all close to the margin. Our uh, business model is the following. District leadership, you got to buy in into the mission of the collaborative and be a good collaborative member, and you got to free up your time and other people's time if we're doing shared professional learning. So a lot of the sweat equity in-kind stuff, they cover. But we don't charge a fee uh, yet, at least in the OAC, and many of these collaboratives around the country we've studied don't either because rural districts are on the margins, but they do have a sweat equity thing. And then the payoff is beyond the impact measures, is uh, the investment of philanthropic and governmental dollars that come in. So, again, we, we, were, we were working with districts that never turned in a grant application because they had no capacity or grant writer, to districts that did and didn't win because of the size and scale that they offered when big money wanted bigger impact. Mm -hmm. Now when they're in 20, 22, 24, and we do the grant writing for them, their grant writing success has gone up amazingly well. So the payoff for them is they're getting access to philanthropic and governmental dollars. We like to call it uh, making the rural market attractive and addressable to philanthropic and governmental investors. 
And so their payoff comes through that. But they do have to put in human capital sweat equity. But to date, they don't really have to put in dollars in terms of the maintenance of the back office and the network orchestration because nobody likes to pay for the glue. Uh, People want to see results, but they don't want to pay for the glue of keeping all this together. Um, So as long as we get the investments from outside, it works. Mark, I love your sayings. (laughs) Okay. Nobody want to pay for the overhead. You call it the glue. I got it. <laughs> okay, the fourth one is autonomy and independence. You've already talked about that. You really had to have it where you all had to say on what goes on because when the government comes in or other outside, they'll to say, here's what we want to happen, which may not be what the rural uh, district needs. You need to say anything more about that? That's the fourth principle of uh, the cooperative. No, I, 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 the only thing I would say on that is any time over the years that I've been involved with collaboratives, if BFK has, if the Telford Kids has strayed on that, it's when we've consciously, unconsciously advanced our own agenda, our, our own thought about what's good for folks. One of the great rural values, if not human values, is ingenuity and the capacity to uh, co-create at the local level with local understanding. And so just lesson learned that uh, you got to be empathetic and really listen first uh, if you're going to do this kind of work and supporting collaboratives and not try to impose your own agenda. What's also very amazing is uh, Bluefield's pretty backwards, but backwards. I, I probably shouldn't even use that word. But when you go down to the coal fields and visit family members and you got somebody sitting on a porch with a pipe in their, in their mouth, and when you first look at them, you may say, that's not, that's not, that much there, but whenever you get a chance to sit and talk, some really very intelligent people in the rural area. I mean, life skills, uh, knowing how to make it when things are rough, and whether it's farming or working a coal field, the railroad, or whatever they might be working in, there's just a lot of knowledge. And too often, people from the outside, the northerners or whatever you want to call them, would come in and want to put the agenda because they think they know what is best. But I have found that these rural folks really know the people and can have the solutions to the problems, particularly if people listen to them. So, yeah, I totally agree. That's been my experience, too. Yeah, and related to that, we kind of have three operating principles is uh, that the change is only going to come from within. Calvary's not going to come over the hill. And secondly, you got to make sure the give-get ratio, particularly in rural settings, are is, is as favorable uh, for the rural setting. Uh, and then the third thing is trust with everything. And so, like you, um, one story that comes to mind for me is we also helped launch a, a 48 district collaborative in Colorado called the Colorado Rural Education Collaborative. And, you know, we coming from Ohio, I mean, you know, outside, it took us a while, but I knew I had arrived when, when I went visit to Colorado in one of the set of seven districts that are kind of in the melon capital of America, honeysuckle melons and a variety of those. When they took us out and had us sit down uh, out in the fields with the melon growers and talking, we knew we had arrived. We knew, we were, <laughs> we, we knew then that uh, that we were part of it. Um, <laughs> so that, that trust and that uh, that making sure you're locally relevant is huge. Well, if you're out there on the field, if you go and you take one of the melons that are ripening on the field, they're the best melons in the world. <laughs> they are. <Yeah. laughs> And they they claim that, and I didn't believe them until I was out there, and oh. I ate them, and they are the best in the world. I got so many stories. I got that in California, went to the melon growers and got a watermelon. They, I've never had better. Number five is education, training, and information. We've already talked about that. That's what you're in the world of, but it's also, as we've already talked about, you educate the educators in the districts, and you get educated by the people in the district. So that goes on and on and on and on. How yeah, and the only thing I think I'd share on that one is uh, there's that self and, and that collegial share education. But the other education that when you become a collaborative, your voice increases at bigger levels in terms of state to policy leaders or federal policy leaders. And so a lot of the things we do now is educating uh, those folks who are distant from the situation uh, because they all have uh, opinions or images about what is rural, and rural's mm-hmm. not rural. Rural in South Carolina is not the same as rural in western Wyoming. Um, And so the other voice and education that's taking place is really having uh, the local folks connect with the state and federal policymakers and really get out assumptions about what is rural and how their rural outreach and support programs can be differentiated to be successful. 
So it's not that we necessarily do policy advocacy. We do kind of mind-framing advocacy to help uh, people outside the rural areas understand what it means to be rural in any particular part of the country. You know, we've got two more principles to talk about, but we're going to take our last and final break. I knew this was going to be a great conversation. And then I want to talk about the different kinds of cooperatives. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. And this is sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their families, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And low-income communities, Mark, is one of the things that NCB does extremely well, and there might be some ways of getting them involved in this, these projects on education. So Brad Mitchell is our guest today, and Brad, I said Mark, but I meant Brad. <laughs> Maybe some way of getting NCB involved. That's the, okay. I have a cousin named Mark, so it, yeah, he'll appreciate it. <laughs> okay. So looking at these principles, the, the sixth one is cooperation among cooperatives. And have you had an opportunity to cooperate with other cooperatives? And you're, you're calling them collaborative. They sound like they're cooperatives, but with a <laughs> different name. Yeah, and I don't even remember why we went with collaborative. Maybe to modernize the cooperative thing or the cooperative field was so rich we didn't want to be presumptuous to enter it. But, yeah, we call them collaboratives, but I agree with you. They're basically designed like cooperatives. So, yes. Quick answer to your question is about three years ago, we thought, well, there's got to be more than the Ohio Appalachian Collaborative. There's many other groups like this that are out doing this. So we kind of took those principles of cooperatives and a couple of other indicators, and we did a national study of who's doing similar things. Uh, and we wrote up a, a study on that um, and identified, I believe at that time, 16 collaboratives. And then we run a Battel for Kids every October. Uh, runs a national rural forum. In fact, I think it's probably the largest for rural education economic development forum in Columbus, Ohio, every year. This year it is October uh, 11th to 13th uh, in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, What were those dates year, again? October what? October 11th through 13th. If people go to www.bfk.org, uh, national rural forum, they can get information on it if they want Um but we brought them in. To, uh, we brought we invited representatives of all 16 of those rural collaboratives to uh, Columbus last year when we did the forum, and we said, "What can we do together better than what we're doing separately?" And so we actually designed over two days kind of the rural collaborative network, which is a cooperative of cooperatives, uh, and we signed a compact over the next few months, and uh, we're now kind of in our first six months together. And when you look at this, you talk about voice again. Uh, 14 of the 16 signed up. Um, they represent or work with 490 rural districts around the country, which is 43,000 teachers and over 600,000 students. And so through the Rural Collaborative Network, we're trying to increase and leverage our voice and, again, make rural more addressable to philanthropic and governmental support investments uh, and to just learn from each other about particularly in these 21st century learning skills of what are you doing in Wisconsin or Washington State or Maryland about uh, developing these new skills, particularly for rural kids and helping rural districts getting better at getting better. And so it's also kind of a knowledge-sharing group as well. We're still young, and we've only been playing together in the sandbox for about six or seven months, but we're very optimistic about uh, the prospects here, particularly right now, as you know, probably with your show much better, you've talked about it much, much more. Supposedly, rural America is the new pink right now, and it's a hot thing. And so how we can grab attention at this time uh, we we think we increase that by connecting these cooperatives around the country. Uh, have you done anything with rural development, the U.S. Department? I think it's U.S. Department uh, of Ag, rural development. Yeah, the various cooperatives, I would say, out of the 14, three or four have, and we're learning from them. We have not done yet a lot with the Ohio Appalachian Collaborative. We have a pretty good communication relationship with the Department of Agricultural Ohio office. They're aware of us. They've come to our forums. We've had some talk. But we really not 
uh, leverage that as deeply as we possibly can. I, I do know they're a great source for many, many things, but we in Ohio haven't really leveraged that yet. There's a gentleman by the name of Doug O'Brien who works for now the NCBA, Clutha. Um, he used to be with uh, Rural Development, but he knows a lot about the rural world, and I think it would be a great contact for you. Uh, Doug O'Brien. Doug O'Brien, it's with who? NCBA, National Cooperative oh. Business Association. Super. We will reach out. NCBA uh, is the organization where it's the umbrella organization for all co-ops. Uh, so cool. let, let me let me give my definition of co-ops here a minute. So co-ops are any business you can think about, and as we're finding education institutions also, but uh, if it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. And owning and controlling is critical for the definition of what type of co-op it is. If it's owned and controlled by the consumers, the people that uses their products or services, uh, it's called a consumer cooperative. And the examples of those are credit unions, housing co-ops, a lot of food co-ops. Most of them are consumer, but some of them are also worker-owned. And so it's a worker, worker co-op. So you get your food co-ops could be a worker-owned co-op or it could be a consumer-owned co-op. And some of them, a couple are now hybrids. They're both owned by the consumers and the members of your food co-ops. The other two types of co-ops are those that, that do the work in the front end of purchasing. They're called purchasing co-ops. And it sounds like that's what you, one of the things that you all did was when you sort of like, how can we get together and purchase teachers? Uh, farmers do this a lot and artists now are doing it a lot where they come together and they say, okay, we need seed and we need fertilizer and we need gasoline and we need equipment. And the smaller farms cannot buy these huge tractors, but if you get, 50 or 90 or 100 of them, then they could buy, buy the tractors or the warehouses that they need, and then they'd schedule how to use them. So that's called a purchasing co-op. And on the other end, and mainly with farmers, they started a marketing cooperative who markets their products. And in both of these, the purchasing and the marketing co-ops, you get the expertise in these co-ops to do the work where a lot of farmers can't have the expertise for purchasing and have the vendors and the knowledge and the contracts and be able to market their products and grow it. And so this way they can focus on growing great uh, products. Same thing with artists. They, they may be really, really good at whatever art that they do, painting or music or making beads or whatever they might do, but they may not be really, really good on purchasing what they need and then selling it. So this is where co-ops really, really come into play and are, and are very, very helpful. And it sounds like you have done that in this educational world. Yeah, and I really appreciate the education there because you, you put it in ways I hadn't language before I thought it through. But I think particularly the, the purchasing and the marketing co-op dynamics are, are the particular. And anyway, like you said, we were trying to purchase teachers together. I think like back to dual enrollment, we were actually kind of purchasing college credit seats together. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and so it's, it's a, I hadn't quite thought about it through that way, so I think that would be helpful, and I will reach out to, to Doug to learn more about how we might be able to extend and learn from the work that co-ops have been doing. That's very helpful for us. Thank you. You're welcome. And the seventh principle is concern for community, and that is one of the principles of co-ops. And so a lot, I've had a lot of cooperators say that you know they don't need a department or of uh social responsibility because it's in the DNA. But I've also heard some say, yeah, we still need it, so we make sure we do this. When when co-ops decide what to do with the money, when the members decide uh, in this member economic participation, if they have a <clears throat> a profit of $90 or $90,000 or $90 million, the members decide how that, that profit or surplus would be divided. And it's normally divided in three ways, Brad. It's, it's how much of it stays in the business for uh, growth, how much of it um, they may give to organizations within the community uh, for whatever the members say that they need in that community, and the third is how much they give out to the members in dividends. And the members decide that, though. That's what I like about member economic participation. And like in the food co-ops, that amount that a member gets, <clears throat> if it's a consumer cooperative, 
is based on how much they buy. And a worker cooperative, if their percentage they get may be how much they work or how much they contribute to the business. So it's, it seems to be a much more equitable way than the capitalistic model with how much money you have, how much stock you own, then that's the percentage of the profit you get. So the rich keep getting richer and richer and richer. Where in this model, everybody, based on what how much they play in the game. So I, I don't see you all doing that in your, or do you do this, participation in that kind of way in your in your collaborative and your cooperative uh we're not that sophisticated yet one and two with the dynamics of education in these areas that's one i think we need to think more about because um a phrase that everybody knows get in the game mm-hmm. it's a while like in the oic there can be 27 districts not all have the same skin in the game um we've got some districts that got total skin in the game and uh they do a lot. We've got some districts that are kind of on the fence, and they'll go depending upon the opportunity. And then we got a few districts, to be frankly honest, that are kind of pre-riders. And so we're still trying to work through those kind of intra-organizational dynamics. And right now, if you've got skin in the game and you do the work, the investments follow. And those investments do go to those places because they're the ones who sign up for pursuing the grant. So maybe in a sort of kind of way with our philosophic and governmental grant pursuit, uh, we do that kind of more egalitarian um, effort equals outcome and, and investment. But I'd have to think more about that. Okay. Well, Brad, we only have about a minute left. And so question is, do you like what you're doing? And what's the last word you'd like to leave the listeners with? One minute. Well, I, I hopefully, yeah, I've been able to communicate. Uh, this is my passion. Uh, I've been in education for 35 years. I've worked with federal, state, urban I come from a rural background, and to be able to have the privilege in the last chapter of my career to work in rural areas is just the passion and the commitment to me. The last thing I'd share is a phrase that our old executive director used to say. He used to say, it's too late to dig a well once the people already are thirsty. Um, and so what really makes me excited about these cooperatives is that uh, we're digging wells with people around where education is going, where economic development in rural communities are going. And we're doing it not out of immediate need and necessity, but a longer vision. Brad, we've got to go. Thank you so very much. Everybody out there, please have a wonderful week. Live cooperatively. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM.